Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in-depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work, in this case, perhaps one that is influenced by this guest's work. Today, I'm really excited to have writer-director Mary Lambert here with me. Hi, Mary. Hey, April. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who are uh, looking for Mary's full life bio, please allow me to give it to you. Uh, Mary is an Arkansas native and a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. There she became enfolded in the music scene and her experimental shorts led her to the world of music videos. In her early career, she directed some of the most iconic videos of the time. A short list of these includes Janet Jackson's Control and Nasty Boys, um, Madonna's Borderline, Like a Virgin, Material Girl, La Isla Bonita, and Like a Prayer, just, you know, a, a few popular videos, we'll say. Uh, uh, not ones that I used to dance in my bedroom to constantly. Um, <laughs> other artists include Tom Tom Club, Whitney Houston, The Go-Go's, Sting, Annie Lennox, and Debbie Harry, among so, so many others. Uh, I mean, I hope that there's going to be maybe a DVD collection of all of your videos. Is that... It was really great to see them on the screen at UCLA uh, on Saturday night, Sunday night. Yeah. Mary had a great uh, little retrospective of her early career music videos and feature films, which was in Los Angeles, in which I was so happy to have been able to attend. Um, one of those movies was uh, Siesta, which was... Uh, Mary's first feature film. It's an adaptation of Patrice Chaplin's novel by Patricia Knopp. Uh, starring Ellen Barkin as a female daredevil, the film tells her story as she prepares to do one death-defying skydive jump, yet impetuously, impetuously travels to Spain to see her old lover for one last time. All of this unfolding in a topsy-turvy, non-linear narrative of fantasy and intrigue. It's almost like a whodunit at times, too. Uh, it was called, quote, This Year's Blue Velvet when it came out. After that film, Mary went back to music videos until she got the call that Stephen King was adapting his book, Pet Cemetery. She got the big okay from King, and Pet Cemetery was a hit. Uh, that was another film that we screened this past weekend. Three years later, Mary directed its sequel, a misunderstood and now thankfully more appreciated film starring Edward Furlong. Continuing with adaptations, Lambert also directed Grand Isle, based on Kate Chopin's uh, Awakening, and ventured into TV with properties such as Tales from the Crypt and The Red Shoe Diaries. Music film Clubland and Thriller in the crowd uh, followed, along with more TV, uh, a documentary, a short called Pearl that she wrote herself, and so much more it's impossible to name everything. Most recently, she's directed episodes of Step Up, High Water, Arrow, and The Blacklist, but uh, she's going to be venturing back into feature films. Uh, there's a movie called Darlene, a black comedy that she is hopefully going to get off the ground very soon. And I've heard the synopsis and it is very dark, very Southern and very funny. And then there's also Mer, which was announced uh, a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago about killer mermaids. And that's an adaptation of the novel Rolling in the Deep. And then there's also a TV series, a limited series called To Kill a Witch that she's getting off the ground. And that is about uh, witch covens in 1920s New York in a kind of gangland-esque story. So there's a lot coming from Mary Lambert, and we're so happy that she was able to stop by today because she's talking about um, hereditary. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to talk about hereditary today? Oh, God, it just blew me away. 
I've watched it three times. First of all, Tony Collette and Millie Shapiro are unbelievable in this movie. Everybody's great in it. Gabriel Byrne, uh, Dowd, and Dowd, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the it's an actor's horror movie, mm-hmm. which is my favorite kind of horror movie, yeah. uh, where the the uh, characters a character driven horror movie, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a plot driven horror movie. Uh, the plot in this one is is pretty Byzantine, um, which is also my favorite plot, <laughs> my favorite kind of plot, and it relies a little bit on. You have to go with it in, in sort of an instinctive, intuitive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it's not a it's not a conventional plot, uh, and it's about witches, and I love witches. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? The the performance Millie uh, Shapiro is this young uh, girl who uh, is is she is the granddaughter, the daughter and the granddaughter of witches, um, uh, but she's not the one who is supposed to inherit the mantle. She's not the one who's supposed to inherit the uh, the um, leadership of the coven mm-hmm. it's it's supposed to be her brother and it also feels like that that storyline you know saying that it's like oh wow is that part of the storyline and it is it is the undercurrent of the entire thing oh. but that's not necessarily what we see on screen because we're seeing the family dynamic it's also a lot like pet cemetery it's about a family dynamic yep uh and i noticed that <laughs> Pretty quickly. And I was just like, this makes a lot of sense that Mary chose this movie. Uh, For those of you who haven't seen Hereditary, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Hereditary first, this is your chance. And now that you're back, let me introduce Hereditary. (laughs) Written and directed by Ari Aster for release in 2018, Hereditary stars Toni Collette as Annie Graham, a miniatures artist in Utah. We meet her before her mother's funeral. She's all out of sorts and delivers a bittersweet eulogy about her secretive mother and their fraught relationship. She was a very difficult woman to read. If you ever thought you knew what was going on with her, and God forbid you tried to confront that, But when her life was unpolluted, she could be the sweetest, warmest, most loving person in the world. She was also incredibly stubborn, which maybe explains me. Later, they get a call that her mother's grave has been desecrated. Annie decides it's time to go to a support group. But at the group, she shares honestly the travesties her family has endured. And the group is seemingly not prepared for that level of very sad. My father died when I was a baby from starvation. Um, because he had psychotic depression. And he starved himself, which I'm sure was just as pleasant as it sounds. And then there's my brother. My older brother had schizophrenia. And when he was 16, he hanged himself in my mother's bedroom. And of course, his suicide note blamed her, accusing her of putting people inside him. So. Meanwhile, Annie's son Peter wants to get away from mom and have a normal social life. But Annie tells him one night that he has to bring his weird little sister Charlie with him to a party. He does, but he leaves Charlie unattended, and she eats some nuts that send her into anaphylactic shock. As he drives home, she sticks her head out the window and is suddenly 
decapitated. Grieving and in shock, Peter drives home with his sister's headless corpse in the back seat. Annie finds the body in the morning and begins blaming Peter immediately. Peter, however, feels Charlie's presence all around the house. Then Annie makes friends with Joan, a woman from the support group, who teaches Annie how to communicate with Charlie's spirit. This terrifying but exhilarating experience alters Annie, who forces her husband and son to do a seance with her. Charlie momentarily possesses Annie, but may n- but maybe not in a good way. Mom? I don't like this. Dad, I don't like this. What's happening? Please stop. Please, please, What's going stop on? Please. Mom! Please, really, please, please stop. What's Dad, happening? Why is stop, everyone please, scared? Not. Annie goes back to Joan's house and notices some handiworks clearly made by her own mother. Then Annie goes back home and discovers a treasure trove of evidence that Joan knew Annie's mother and was in a cult with her that worshipped Annie's mother, which is very surprising to her. Then Annie discovers her mother's headless corpse in the attic. Meanwhile, Peter's feeling possessed himself, harming himself at school. Back at home, Annie begs her husband to burn a book she thinks is connecting her to these malevolent spirits, but when he does, he goes up in flames and dies. The final act ends with Peter awakening from a deep sleep to find nude people in his house and his mother levitating in the attic while cutting off her own head. He jumps out the window and is raised into a little treehouse where it is clear Peter is no longer Peter, but is now Pyman a deity spirit possessing his body, worshipped by nude strangers and headless bodies. Bind all men to our will as we have bound ourselves for now and ever to yours. Hail Paymon! Hail Paymon! A shocking ending. (laughs) You don't really see it coming from the first... Uh, m- m- 10 minutes of no. the movie, which is another reason I like the film. Um, there's also, I guess there's recurring themes in it that just intrigue me because they're around you all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I see these stories around me all the time, like the theme which is uh, in from Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. that the people, the kindly old lady that you meet... Uh, next door is actually, you know, the witch that's yes. going to drag you. That's going to drag you into the uh, um, ceremony and uh, steal your baby. Yeah, Joan seems so kind, so lovely, but yeah, she's the one who's going to, you know, destroy your family and kill I, it. I love this. And uh, I have friends who tell me that I that I'm paranoid. Uh, I'm not really paranoid, but I. Um, I do sort of like question things that happen to me on the, you know, on the obvious plane of my everyday existence. Like mm-hmm. th- there's an example of this in uh, Pet Cemetery, which we talked about the other night, which mm-hmm. is that uh, Fred Gwynn, who seems to be the kindly old man next door, mm-hmm. uh, who's who wants to help Lewis and who wants to be a friend of the family. He's actually the bad angel that gives that tempts him. He's the de- he tempts Lewis to do the one thing that's going to destroy his family, whereas um Pascal, the ghost that visits the horrible, uh, horribly disfigured uh, 
ghost that visits Lewis in the middle of the night is the good angel. Mm -hmm. But you would think from looking at him that he was the, the um he was the demon because he looks so horrific and because he comes in the middle of the night and scares you. Uh, and you would think the old man next door was the good angel. You have to like you have to examine the things that happen to you because there's very often there's a shadow side to what's going on and i love movies that point out point that out and say don't don't accept things at face value you know look behind the screen i i think um those characters here the having the unexpected villain who's not really a villain necessarily they believe deeply in what they're doing you know I, I, you know fred gwynn's character he definitely believes in what he's doing and ann dowd's character joan definitely believes that she's doing exactly the right thing even though there's a bit of deception going on they're withholding at mm-hmm. the very least mm-hmm. um so millie shapiro who played the girl and then alex wolf who played um uh, peter uh they did an interview together where they were talking about how they had they have different acting styles Styles. Mm-hmm. So Millie Shapiro, her style is very much, um, she comes from a theater world, so her style is very much, um, she just turns it on. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, she doesn't live in the character. She she separates herself from it, and then she turns it on, and she's back to work. Um, whereas Alex Wolf, when he was working on the film, he felt that he had to stay in the character mm-hmm. and was just, like, mm-hmm. in his trailer. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about working with actors, because every actor on set is going to have probably a different um you know, prompts that they need or, um, you know, different method that they're using. And so Alex Wolf had said that um, Ari Aster was really good at getting the best performances. And he said, quote, wasn't pressuring uh, them to change how their acting style was. He just knew how to work with everyone. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about your experience of working with people who have different acting styles. Well, you just said it, but I'll say it again. Every actor has a slightly different style and, and some, you know, it, they can be 180 degrees apart, uh, these styles. Some actors do need to live the part. Um, you know, from Have the, you worked with people who... who... Ellen Barkin. Um, Ellen Barkin, for sure. Uh, Elizabeth Moss, mm-hmm. um, uh, who was who in my in film The Attic. Um, some actors are... They fall back on their. They do. It's their craft. Mm-hmm. It's it's their art and their craft. But it's yeah. but it's more like picking up a guitar, you know, that you've or a, or sitting down at a piano that you practice on all the time. That you, um, that you play soulfully and skillfully and with feeling and intuition. But you don't play the piano all the time. You know, you sit when you play the piano when you're seated there, and then you get up and you're not playing the piano anymore. <laughs> you know, so some actors are are more like that. I would think I would say Clancy Brown is more like that. Really? Um, yeah. In that he's like so in control of, of you know, being in and out of the character. And when he's in the character, he is 100%. And I, I don't think that an actor can really, well, who knows what is going on in the head of an actor when they're doing something fabulous. But, but it's my experience uh, and my belief that it's really important for the actor to stop being Clancy Brown and become Gus. Mm-hmm. And for that moment that, uh, or for Ellen to stop being Ellen and become Claire. For that moment that the camera's rolling or that they're on stage or whatever, you have to start making your decisions as that character. Mm-hmm. You have to, you, when, I, when you hear someone speaking to you in the, um, when you're, uh, you know, 
your scene partner or the person that you're acting with, the other, the conversations have got to happen in the moment. And the re- response has got to be in the moment. And that's where you get the most successful performances that, that feel alive. When Sometimes an actor will deliver a line and I'll think they're talking to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that, that the magic is there. You know, it's like uh, it's like meditating. It's like you can't force yourself to be good. Mm-hmm. You can't force yourself to be a good actor. You have to like you have to like slide into that zone and be in that zone. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not an athlete, but I imagine it must be a little bit like being a gymnast. You know, you can't be thinking when you're doing a triple flip. You can't be thinking. You can't be thinking about it like anything. You can't be. You, <laughs> you just have to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Your bo- You just have to be in the flow of it, and you. If, you know, it's like if you start. If you start thinking about it, then you lose it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these performances. I want to get into what Tony Collette was kind of giving and what she gave up to to make this character so big um but we i also want to get into melodramas and hopelessness versus hope and Mm -hmm. you know genre complacency so we'll be right back Hey, if you like your podcast to be focused and well-researched and your podcast host to be uncharismatic, unhorny strangers who have no interest in horses, then this is not the podcast for you. Again, what's your deal? <laughs> I'm Emily. I'm Lisa. Our show's called Baby Geniuses. And its hosts are horny adult idiots. We discover weird Wikipedia pages every episode. We discuss institutional misogyny. We ask each other the dumbest questions and our listeners won't stop sending us pictures of their butts. We haven't asked them to stop, but they also aren't stopping. Join us on Baby Geniuses every other week on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Mary Lambert, and we're talking about hereditary. Uh, So, you know, I had mentioned before uh, something about the complacency of genre, and I wanted to uh, bring up a quote that Ari Aster had had said in an interview after it was brought up because people were like, oh, this is a genre film, unlike other horror films. And he was like, well, Uh, he said, quote, I love genre, but I think there's a certain amount of complacency that comes with watching a genre film. People know what the devices are. They know what the tropes are. They know the conventions. They come in with certain expectations, and the more films that mindlessly meet those expectations, the more passive a viewer you end up getting. There are so many examples of films that play with those things in the way that I've tried to here. The joy of making a genre film is that you have audiences in that place, and it's a perfect place to start because all it takes is finding ways to startle them out of that complacency, encourage a different kind of engagement. And, you know, you've worked in the genre space a lot, Mary, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm going to talk about something that I think is related to that, which is the idea that of spells and how witches control events mm-hmm. and you know why they why are they witches what 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 do witches do why have women been burned as witches uh, for centuries because because they control things because they are able to control the universe mm-hmm. and one of my favorite moments in Hereditary is when the little girl sees the bird hit the window when Millie Shapiro's character, I can't remember. Charlie. 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 When Charlie sees the bird hit the school window and die. And and at recess, she goes out and she finds that she steals a pair of scissors from the classroom and she goes out 
uh, into the schoolyard where she's obviously an outcast. Mm-hmm. Nobody plays with her. Um, and she finds the bird and she cuts off its head. Um, and she makes an art object out of it. Mm-hmm. She draws a picture of the of the head and then she makes like a little stat a little totem or statue of it. And it's not it's never stated anywhere that this is a spell mm-hmm. or that this is a causative thing. But then what happens to her? She gets decapitated. Mm-hmm. So I just in terms of like um doing things that are unexpected that cause you to think you if that if so this scene is really effective to me i mean mm-hmm. um and and i have to think about it and i think about it. why why is it so affecting to me why is it so why did she do it mm-hmm. i mean do you know why she did it i mean i can i can infer uh-huh. like he leaves it open ended so i can infer that maybe she's doing that as uh uh almost like a uh not a foreshadow, but like a kind of calling well, of her a, own death. It is a foreshadowing of her own death. Yeah. In, the, in the movie, you know, in the in the story, in, in the film as it's presented, it's a foreshadowing. But why does she do it? And I, I think it's a spell that the that the witches are are you know making her making do. her do. Yeah. That 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 she's she's the agent of her own death. Yeah. Um. Because she um, um. Because she enacts this this ritual with yeah. the bird and that that's that's why it happens and it's not explained no. and that's what you're talking about too is just this kind of thing of you know we're talking about complacency and mm-hmm. shocking people out mm-hmm. of it first of all the the decapitation scene is Hard. extremely shocking it's incredibly right? shocking and yet when you watch it again you realize that it's been set up. This brings up something that that we ended up talking about this past weekend too in relation to pet cemetery um and and I'm I'm curious if if you feel this is in your other films and and other pieces too, um, where you have these kind of visual subconscious clues that you're planting around. And this is something that Ari Aster loves doing. And if you see Midsommar, um, I can't wait to see it. It it he makes it even more obvious because he's kind of playing around with that, where he's just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm gonna put the entire story right here for you in the beginning, and it will be. Uh, part of the production design, a part of the art. Mm -hmm. And so when something strange happens, you have a kind of false memory of understanding that it seems strange but okay because there's a subconscious thing that he's already put someplace else. And I remember we were talking about that in terms of Pet Cemetery and the photographs and the pictures that you were putting around the set. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what that does for you, why you're interested in that? Well, I'm also a painter and the my favorite paintings do this. You know, they show you something that doesn't necessarily make narrative sense, but it is it's still a narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a uh, um you know, I mean an obvious example of this are Magritte's paintings mm-hmm. where where he he makes these surreal juxtapositions and everybody thinks of the apple or the Bowler hat, but oh my God, he had so much, so many other. Um, yeah, there's like, like a train coming out of the fireplace. Yeah, stuff, stuff like that. So painted like, windows and yeah. But but um, I mean that's an extreme example, and a very obvious example. But a, a contemporary uh, painter who I'm really enamored of, named Carrie Marshall, paints these huge, huge, huge canvases. Um, and they're all all of his subjects are African-American, mm-hmm. but they're oftentimes they're 
enacting really strange, uh, like, like he has one painting of people in a boat and on a lake, and a, and people picnicking on picnic, you know, blankets that are spread. It's huge. I'm talking like uh, ten feet by. Mm-hmm. 15 feet. Um, so it's reminiscent of like Monet or the, the French, uh, you know, expressionist. Yeah. But it's also like these African-Americans are doing things that white people did in the 60s. Yeah. Kind of. It's like it's it feels weird. It's like it's like from a uh, advertisement in Life magazine. Yeah. It's almost like, like a revisionist history. It's, it's like revisionist, weird revisionist history. And you and it's like it's off. And then you're saying, well, why why does it feel weird? You know, why can't these people be in this boat? It's because you never saw that image before. Mm-hmm. You've seen that image in magazine advertisements, you've seen it in James Bond movies, you've seen it, but you've you've never seen it in the way that he's presenting it to mm-hmm. you. Um I, I think that really good paintings sh- uh do that for me. Uh and sometimes uh, life does that. Sometimes you're just walking down the street and you see juxtapositions of Images or colors that uh, um, that you've never seen before. So it's and, like kind of making like making something that seems slightly off kilter. Like there's a like an, an element that seems strange or wrong. It's like or, telling somebody. It's like telling somebody something um, subconsciously that can't actually be uh, vocalized. Mm-hmm. And I think. That Ari does that. He, he tells you things visually that I'm having difficulty vocalizing, but it's because you can't vocalize them completely. It's because you're feeling a, it. Because you're feeling it exactly. It's because it's intuitive. It's like this is this is going to be frightening. You know, it's like why were those images in the ring, which is another one of my favorite horror movies. Oh, I love the ring. Why is the image of the chair so frightening? Mm-hmm. Why is that image of just a chair? So hysterically frightening. Yeah, uh, and we could talk about that for a long time. We could we could come up with uh, we could come up with justifications for why it's so frightening. But ultimately, there's just something intuitive about the about the format and the placement and seeing it, uh, you know, with the fuzzy video all mm-hmm. around it and 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 the the soundtrack and everything. It, it's just scary. It's just scary. And I think Ari has that. Um, talent uh, yeah. of finding those images. Why are those dollhouses so scary? And, it's it, fucking it, creepy. They're so creepy. <laughs> they are so creepy. Why is why are the drawings that um, that Charlie does so frightening? They're actually good little drawings. Yeah. But they're terrifying. They're a little they're very primitive, you know. He's he's working off of I think some you know, actual research of, mm-hmm. of and, and I appreciate when someone does research. Like, he definitely did a lot of research. He was very into, like, the, the Paimon uh, uh, myths. Why is the treehouse so frightening? <laughs> it's just really, I don't know. I mean, we, again, we could talk about, you know, the shape of it and the entering from through the hole in the bottom mm-hmm. and all those things, and we could come up with a good justification. But you you could do all that kind of uh, intellectual justification and still not have a scary image. Yeah. So at the whole thing, the other thing I loved about it was like, you know, the 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 misfit teenage girl or adolescent girl. Yeah. I mean, um, Peter was brilliant as the um, as the tortured teenage boy, but it, but but she was also 
you know, yeah. th- that this the equal pain coming from there yeah. as the as the misfit, uh, and she was really a misfit. Peter was, Peter had demons that were pursuing him. Yeah, they were causing him to, um, you know, this to be the worst time of his life. But she was a, a misfit. Deep, deep, deep down inside. And it was so uncomfortable for Millie Shapiro as an actress because they were shooting in June. It was very hot. Mm-hmm. And she had to wear winter clothing. Mm. So, you know, you can, like, the costuming, the costuming I thought was really perfect mm-hmm. for her. Mm-hmm. You know, she's wearing these kind of, like, baggy, oversized clothes that are almost, like, kind of degendered in a, in a, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense when you think about the fact that she's kind of possessed by this male figure mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be female. I mean, what a great metaphor Yeah, to, to be um, uh, 12 years old and to be p- possessed by a male demon because it is a little bit like that if you're struck, if you're a 12-year-old girl and you want to do things that people say girls can't do. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like there's a demon sitting on your chest and it's a male demon and he's saying, no, you're not, you're not a man, you can't do this. And that's, that's at the very heart of this movie. That's what this movie's saying, is that she can't be payment because she's not a man. Yeah. I mean, it's about... Like he's rejecting her he's, he's, she's, while he's taking over her. She's been... She's she she's being rejected for being a woman because um, they want a male heir. They want a male heir to this uh, the demonic kingdom. And so... There you go. I said it. That at the very heart of it, that's why I love this movie so much. And it's it's her performance and Tony Collette's performance, who we've kind of given short shrift to because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Tony drives. She drives the movie uh, and she's not she she's she's been skipped over basically mm-hmm. she's almost she's been completely rejected as as, as unworthy of anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and. And she struggles with that every day, you know. She she struggles with the fact that she doesn't love her mother, that she doesn't relate to her kids, that the only only outlet she has really is is her art, you know. And it's weirder than hell. I mean, it's really weird. <laughs> really, I I think so. Tony Collette said that quote it just turns this kind of idyllic, idealized myth of what it is to be a mother completely on its head. She's so real and multi-layered. It's so rare to play a woman that feels as complicated as she does. I think there's no one way of being. We are all many things. Um, so those things keep changing as you're a mother, too. So it's hard to say without simplifying one of the most profound relationships one can have. And I tried to bring that message to all the mothers that I play. Yes, they're mothers, but they're whole complex creatures on their own. And this is a mother character unlike any others I've, that I've it's ever a, seen. It, I've never seen this mother character. She wants to be a mother, but she can't Yeah, be she's a not good or bad. There's no good or bad to her. She's, she's just... She tries really hard. She's trying. She's trying really hard to be a mother, and she's trying hard to be a daughter. Yeah. And and um, she doesn't understand why it can't work. And it in in the um you know in the context of this movie, it can't work because um, of these supernatural forces, which she doesn't understand, or or n- she doesn't understand that they ex- that these supernatural forces exist, and so she she doesn't know how to fight them. Um, uh, it's it's a it's just a brilliant. Portrayal, and when she goes off the rails, um, in that scene where she does the séance, and she goes off the rails, oh my God, she's just, she's so believable. She, she asked Ari if she was doing too much, and he said no. <laughs> <laughs> she just does the whole thing with such humanity. I mean, she does not, she's not playing that movie like a horror movie. She's not. It's not a horror movie. It's it's the movie of this 
this woman, this mother who's who's unraveling. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get further into that and okay. the idea of melodramas, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we'll be right back. Okay. Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager and I I was two butts, 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 butts. No. <laughs> Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Mary Lambert, and we're talking about hereditary. Um, Ari Esther said that while he knew that this was a genre film that he was making, he was very much focused on directing it in a sense like a melodrama. He said, quote, I do see the film as owing a greater debt to domestic melodrama than even to the horror film. It's derived from melos, music, so drama as music. Here you have a film about people who are suffering and they're in great pain. And the film is aiming to honor those feelings and the extreme emotions... And the extreme emotions that they're suffering through by ultimately being as big and intense and extreme as those emotions. So the film is mirroring what these people are going through by matching it in its story and the narrative development and in its in the style. In that way, it's also a very expressionistic film. The feelings of the people are there to be seen. You take what's inside and you put it outside. I think even as we move into Grand Guignol ter- territory, that debt to the melodrama is still very much there. You've actually talked about the Grand Gagnon before mm-hmm. in terms of um, both Siesta and Pet Cemetery mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. your your love for that. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about um, what that means to you? What these kind of like bigger, over the top uh, moments are? Well, um, two things. One, uh, I think it's for me as an artist. Uh, it's really fun and satisfying is a good word too mm-hmm. to take something that's uh, take an, an image or a, or a situation that's very extreme mm-hmm. and to make a point with it and mm-hmm. to provoke people with it uh, um, to go you know to go to a place that's so extreme and provocative that it upsets p- people. Then and they don't completely understand why, uh, or they think they they either either they don't understand completely why it's so uh, so upsetting, or it's so upsetting to them on one level that it takes them a while to get to the next level, which is what you intend. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you in, what you're trying to do is like provoke these emotions. Um, and and then kind of like soften them up, so they can accept the next uh, level of storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, the next level of of like maybe perhaps nonlinear mm-hmm. uh, storytelling because there's a lot of lot nonlinear storytelling in uh, um, 
in hereditary and um and you love nonlinear I stuff. I love nonlinear stuff. I mean, and that that's, you know, you have an experimental uh, background with art, and then you have music videos, mm-hmm. which are, you know, uh, juxtapositions of images and strange things that are not always in a seam, in a time sequence that, that makes um, perfect sense. They're more of my most successful uh, music videos, I think, are more emotional narratives than they are, you know, traditional narratives. Mm-hmm. That's what I always try to find is the emotional narrative in a a music video but um you know melodrama melos means you know the whole idea that it means it's about feelings mm-hmm. uh but it also uh, uh academically um a melodrama is plot driven mm-hmm. um as opposed to a character driven um story mm-hmm. and um it's interesting to talk about hereditary as a plot driven story cuz it is actually a plot driven story the characters um things happen to the characters and that's what causes the plot to move forward the characters uh they don't they don't make decisions they're incapable mm-hmm. of of making the decisions that their character would actually make because um their characters are being controlled. Yeah, it's like pawns. They're pawns. Yeah. They're all pawns. And it it's kind of funny because, I don't, I don't know, do you see the irony of this? Mm-hmm. Because it, it's, um, you would walk out of that movie and just say that it's the the quintessential character-driven movie because of, cause it's, cause Tony Collette's character is just so achingly, heartbreakingly, um, mm, available to you all yeah. the way through the movie and and likewise honestly for all the characters their 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 feelings are so available to you uh um as a as a onlooker but their characters are not driving the movie mm-hmm. because uh they're like we said before they're they're pawns in the um in the clutch of of Paimon. Uh, I, I wanted to bring out um, the the idea that uh, um, for set dressing for this, they ended up having to do the set dressing first um, as they were making it, which is not the normal process um, because they had Steve Newburn in Toronto replicating the spaces for the dollhouse and the, for the little dollhouses, the miniatures. And so they, you know, they had to essentially build all of the real furniture and all of the real house and everything at the same time that the miniatures were going on. Otherwise, it wouldn't be finished. And it's a really complex and, and perfect part of this movie. Mm-hmm. So they had to design on all of the set dressing even before the house was built. And so it was it was a really backwards process of like, oh, I wish we could have done this differently, but we already got it done in the miniatures house. So that's the way that it is now. <laughs> well, I don't I'm just curious if you know, did the the production designer was working with the miniature builder, I'm assuming. Yeah, Grace Union was working yeah. with the miniatures builder. But she was also in a different city because they had they had farmed it out. They were originally going to shoot in Toronto, and then it worked out better financially for them to shoot in Utah. Um, so he was the only one really who was – and he was also doing prosthetics mm-hmm. for the for the film originally too. So it's it, Still, it sounds like a production designer's dream. I, I mean, all the – production designers. I've worked with some really great production designers, and thank you to every single one of you out there who's ever done uh, this for me, because I love that um, 
collaboration. I just get so excited about it. Mm-hmm. Somebody that wants to help me visualize, help me take what's in my head and then move it around, make it better, and then and then put it out there. But it sounds like a production designer's dream to like get to do it twice. You know, you get yeah, to do it exactly. big, and then get to do it little <laughs> tiny. <laughs> you just const- yeah, just can you get it smaller? Can you you know like a uh-huh. Russian nesting dolls of, yeah, of uh, can, can houses? You- <laughs> um, but Steve Newburn also brings me up to one specific thing, and that was um, he said, "quote They cut out about eighty percent of our prosthetic work on the show because he also did the prosthetics." Mm-hmm. And and I would say, but I, I'm the first person who will say it was for the better of the film. I think Ari has such a strong cast, and going back to the decapitation, Peter's reaction of just sitting there for like forty seconds in silence is just—I think anybody can relate that it's pure shock for the audience and even with me knowing what had had to happen I mean we shot everything we shot the decapitation we shot him actually looking back and seeing his headless sister spewed all over the back seat but they took all that out and just left his reaction for me that's way more visceral when you look at that and you think oh my god I can almost relate what would you do and I thought that was an interesting thing that they you know they spent this time and this money kind of perfecting these like gory things and they ended up having just the suggestion of them in the well, performance. Well, except when Tony Collette um, finds the headless corpse in the morning, that I, I think not seeing it earlier makes what she sees even more horrible with yeah. the, the bugs crawling yeah. around in the ant. It has ants yeah. in it, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, it's like uh, it's uh, I think. Seeing it first from her point of view Mm -hmm. is really powerful. It's a withholding, you Mm -hmm. know, like you're building that Mm -hmm. tension. Mm -hmm. Have you have you ever made like such big cuts on things that you thought were going to be like the the best part or the scariest part? Um, Yeah, uh, sometimes you have to lose the thing you like the best to make the movie work. Uh, Sometimes you have to. I mean, usually it's around a performance. Because mm-hmm. I always fall in love with my actors, yeah. And there'll be a close up of 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 an actress that I'm just oh she's so beautiful. Look at her eyes. Look at the light in her hair. She's this is so fabulous. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just one moment when the actor just everything you want from the character just spews out of that one close up, and and of course I put it in the movie, mm-hmm. and then but it's in the wrong place. You know, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you keep trying to keep, you keep trying to make the scene work so that you can have that one moment of that one close up when the little tear just, and then you realize that the scene is never going to work, and you can't use that close up. Yeah, and you have to take it out. So that's that's what it, how it usually manifests for, for me. Um, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes you have to lose something you've paid a lot of money for. Um, a lot of times, I didn't want to lose it. <laughs> So you didn't? You're like, no, fuck no, this. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what happens a lot, especially in television, is that you do a really beautiful uh, crane shot or a moving shot, and you yeah. follow somebody, and, and it, it's really just, it, it tells, it, for me, it'll tell the whole story just in that one shot, and then, of course, it, you know, it, they have to cut it, because it um, <laughs> it's like, you know, I've been told by ADs, if they're not talking, it's not going to get used. So just oh. don't, don't shoot that. They're not talking. <laughs> <laughs> They're not talking. They won't use it. And I'm like, oh, oh no, really? TV. But that that's not that's not. I'm I'm not maligning television. I think some of the best stuff that's going on right now um, is is um, on television, network yeah. and cable. And I think it's a place where a director can really 
um, explore explore character in depth, ex- mm-hmm. explore you know visual. Um, um, I'm talking about not just uh, television, episodic television. I'm, I, I've done a lot of television movies. I did a lot of television movies back in the day, mm-hmm. um, and you know, um, you have a you have a time slot. Yeah. You have a hard time slot. And that's something that you have to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you so much for coming in to talk about Hereditary and mm-hmm. about your films. Mm-hmm. And um, people can see Pet Cemetery and uh, Siesta. Hopefully, hopefully Siesta will come out on DVD. We're working on that right now because it, it actually has, you haven't been able to ever, for a while it was on VHS, mm-hmm. um, but it hasn't been available to, to view anywhere on, on streaming DVD anywhere for at least I don't know 30 years yeah but you I mean there are also copies floating around of all of her other films uh, and you know Clubland uh, and <laughs> someday like... we'll talk about Clubland because Clubland's really a good movie <laughs> it's a fun movie I saw it when mm-hmm. it came out mm-hmm. I yeah it's probably the closest that you've come to doing a musical mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's almost there as a traditional musical I would say um, so please look up Mary's work and keep an eye out for what she's got coming up next and uh, thank you so much for coming in thank you April and thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters if you like what you're hearing please leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts if you do we'll read it on air here's one from Dia Daily April is a great interviewer and I'm always adding things to my watch list I'm trying to watch more films by female filmmakers and this is a great resource thank you so much Dia Daily if you want to let us know what you think of the show you can tweet it us at Switchblade Pod or email us at Switchblade Sisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash Switchblade Sisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.